this is going to feel maybe like a strong word, and I, I feel, feel like the Lord gives me those a lot. Um, and oftentimes I feel a little heavy when I have to deliver them, but today I feel really excited. I feel not just, you know, um, what's that word I said I felt that I mischievous? I, it's not that. It's, it's, it's um, I have expectation. I think that the Lord is doing something. He's really, really, really doing something. And he must believe we're going to respond or he wouldn't keep this up. He'd let us just be white bread church. You know, everybody's happy. He'll tell you what you want to hear, all that kind of stuff. But he's not. He's calling us. You know, I don't know how you like to say it. He's calling us down to a lower place, you know, a, hum- a more humble place. Or he's calling us up, you know, to the fullness of, you know, what he has for us. The church does not walk in anywhere near the fullness of its calling or the fullness of its privilege in the Lord. But he's doing something here. And I'm, I'm not being proud. I'm not, I mean, I'm just excited. I really am excited. So um, he's given me so many scriptures. It's just unbelievable. I don't have them all. I, I, I pared this down a bunch. But I had a real hard time trying to figure out how to order it. So I think you're going to get the gist. I don't know if I've ordered it the best possible way. Um, but I'm going to start in a different place than I thought I was going to start. Oh, I didn't take the offering. So don't let me forget to take the offering. Margie, you're responsible for the offering today. All right, so um, we didn't have church last Sunday because it was icy. But two Sundays ago, we had a message in tongues, right? The gift of the Holy Spirit, a corporate gift. And we had an interpretation. And the interpretation of that tongue was a scripture. And the scripture was, uh, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent are taking it by force, right? That's nice, you know, get a scripture. I, I, I really feel like I have to learn how to shepherd those things a little bit better, especially now. Um, fast forward, I'm reading the Bible last week, and I am reading Isaiah. Um, if you know me, uh, it's like pulling teeth for me to read Isaiah. It's like it's written in a different language. Teresa says, I don't understand you. I love Isaiah so much. I'm like, oh, man, it's like trying to plow concrete for me. And she says, well, I don't bother with I have to understand every word. And I'm like, I can't get to the next word until I understand every word. So anyway, I have been faithfully plowing concrete in Isaiah. And I don't know, I had read like four chapters that morning. And I just, I just said, Lord, I'm going to read all the way through Isaiah. But I don't want to read anymore today. I want to read something else. Could, could you just, you know, just stir me? To something that I want to read, just something that, you know, I can just like reading. Uh, and not that, you know, Isaiah is bad. Isaiah is wonderful. I mean, it's the most uh, messianic, prophetic book, really, in the Bible, I think. Um, so as I'm listening for the Lord to just give me some direction as to, you know, can I go read something else? I hear this The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent are taking it by force. I thought, oh, I don't really know that I have a good understanding of that. I'm going to go find that one, and I'll just read about that. So um, I'm reading it from Matthew chapter 11, and I'll expound on that a little bit. But as I start to gain understanding of it, which it turns out my understanding, you know, what I thought it meant wasn't quite exactly what it means. So I was learning a bunch, and all of a sudden I thought, Lord, I preached a message. What do you believe on the day that you gave that message to us, that scripture about the kingdom of heaven, and it all just dovetailed together once I started to understand what that scripture meant. And it just encouraged me so much. 
So I said, do you want me to teach on this? And I felt this overwhelming yes. And then it was like I was drinking from a fire hose. To just It just kept coming and coming. I'm like, oh, we'll be here for three days and, you know, pare back a little bit. But what's the message? And how do you order the thing? So all that being said, I want you to know that I'm so confident that this is the Lord, that this is what he's doing. And, and I'll give you the, be- the end from the beginning. The reason that he gave us that word two Sundays ago, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent people or the violent take it by force, is because there's going to be more hard messages coming. And every one of us is going to be tested in where we're at with the Lord and how far will we let him take us. And the church proper, the Western church proper, is, is about willing to, to deny that much of their lives and say that, you know, that they're in love with Jesus. But he's saying, nope, I want more, I want more, I want more. And the more that you'll give me, the more that you can have. And the more that you have, the more you will impact this world for Jesus. So that's what's going on in the bigger picture. So I want to do a quick review of last week. I'm going to start it with a, last week is two weeks ago, but you know what I mean. I'm going to start it with a scripture that wasn't part of that sermon, but it's one that God gave me for this week, and I think this is where it fits. It's 1 Timothy chapter 4. But the Spirit, capital S, you know, Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So the New Testament is full of warnings about false teachers, about antichrists and antichrist spirits, not just the big antichrist that comes at the, at the end of this age, but the antichrist that was already present, many of them in the church at the time. And one of the things we have to understand is not every false teacher is a false teacher that believes themselves to be a false teacher. As a matter of fact, most teachers that would teach something wrong are just wrong. They're not bad people. They're not evil people. They're not trying to deceive the church. They're just wrong. And people are following bad teaching. And that was prophesied to happen, that that there's going to be these doctrines of demons. People are going to be stirred by the enemy. They have certain thoughts that they're going to build into doctrines that they're going to teach and they're going to talk among themselves. And they're going to become how people think, but they're not truth. And that's what that sermon was about. It's like, what do you believe? The church's head is full of all kinds of doctrine and belief that has no basis in truth. Uh, They're doctrines of demons and men. And then I gave some statistics. These are real statistics. (laughs) It's like trying to say Thessalonians. Statistics. These are real statistics from like Barna studies that the people that they surveyed are regular, every Sunday churchgoers definitely would call themselves full-on Christians, okay? Only 52% of those people surveyed, thousands, believe that Jesus Christ had a sinless life. I mean, the foundation of Christianity is a perfect and spotless lamb of God offered as a sacrifice for our sins. If Jesus is not that, then we are dead in our sin because there is no acceptable uh, sacrifice that's ever been made on our behalf. Yet half the church believes, oh, come on, he's not perfect. He absolutely is perfect, but half the church doesn't think so. 40% 47, 40%, 47% believe. You can tell when I'm excited. The words all mush together. Only 40%. <laughs> Lower down there. <laughs> Only 47% believe that absolute moral truth exists and is found in the scriptures. So again, roughly half the church believes that you can believe what you want to believe. The Bible, it's got some stuff in there that's true. It's got some stuff in there that's not true. The minute you make any of it 
suspect, you make all of it suspect because then you can have the parts that you want be false and the parts that work for you be true. All bets are off. If, if we don't commit ourselves to say, no, this is the perfect and infallible and, and reliable word of God himself, then we have nothing. It is truth. But half the church doesn't think so. That's pretty scary. And then the last one is most of those Christians surveyed also said that it was possible to earn your way into heaven, to be good enough to go to heaven. I mean, that is so counter to the truth. It's, it's like the most counter to the truth. There are none righteous, no, not one. Nobody believes in God. Nobody does what's right. Nobody, all have sinned and fallen short. I mean, the Bible tells us there's nobody. Another one was, you know, good people go to heaven. I'll get to that in a second. The problem is there's no good people unless you decide the standard, right? If I decide the standard, I'm going to be at least a little above it. You know, some of you guys might not make it with me, but I'm going to make it if I define the standard. The problem is God defines the standard. And you know what the standard is? God himself. So if if your goodness equals God himself, then you don't need Jesus. You go right to heaven because good people do go to heaven. The problem is you've got to define it the way it's actually defined, and that's by the perfect holiness and righteousness of God himself. Okay, I gave three examples of things that I've actually encountered myself. There's more, but three that were pretty common that I've encountered in conversations with Christians. One is about God's love, one is about God's grace, and one is about evolution. Uh, The example from God's love is, I don't believe a loving God would send good people to hell. Well, he is a loving God. He doesn't send anybody to hell. People choose heaven or hell. They want God or they don't want God, and, and they think that somehow they should get to define to the creator of everything that is what his standard is, but they don't get to. And it's sad and it's too bad, but if you want to have eternal life with God, then you have to have his son Jesus, and there's a process that you get his son Jesus, and it's not just whatever you think. Okay, uh, God's grace, (laughs) this one makes me laugh. I've heard this one a million times. You're talking to somebody and they're telling you about something in their life and you're like, holy Moses, you need to stop that. I mean, that's really contrary to what God would say. They say, it's okay, God knows my heart. It's like he does know your heart and it's not okay. Seriously, it's not okay. But people want to say it's okay because in my heart I really love Jesus. But you're doing this and you're doing this and you're doing this. You're putting him on the cross every single day again and again and again. I know, but, but in my heart I really love Jesus. It's like, no, you don't. It's not okay. There is no grace for that. If you love Jesus and you're trying to serve him and you stumble, there's tons of grace for that. But no grace to live a lifestyle that's contrary to his teaching. And then the third one was um, about evolution. I can be a Christian and believe in evolution. Now, I'm not saying you can't. I'm not sure about that. But if you believe in evolution, then you don't believe that you have a creator. You believe that you happened by accident, right? Because that's what evolution says, that this, this, somehow these chemicals got together and lightning struck them and and that, you know, a trillion billion years later, there's human beings and there's birds and there's ducks and there's, you know, all that we see, you're not beholden to anybody if you happen by accident. And you have no purpose if you happen by accident. You came, you went, you come, you go, you do, you don't, you have fun, you live, you die, it doesn't matter because evolution, which is chance, determined you. So if you believe in evolution, yet you call yourself a Christian, you don't have the obligation to God that you would to your maker, If he created me, then he gets to kind of decide about me. But if I don't believe he created me, then he doesn't get to have a voice in how I would perceive my life. Three things like that. Okay, so now, um, 
the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent are taking it by force. Something interesting I, I learned this week, I mean, I, I kind of knew some of this stuff, but not all of it. There is what's called the intertestamental period. I don't know if you ever heard that word. That's kind of a big word. But basically what it says is God chose Abraham. Abraham was to be the father of a nation, a massive nation that would represent God on this earth. And, and through those people, ultimately Jacob's lineage, sorry, I ate a cookie before church. <laughs> and beef jerky, okay. A cookie and beef jerky, Keith. <laughs> Everybody needs a conscience. <laughs> there was then, then uh, those people were um, given to be rescued out of Egypt. God chose a guy named Moses to do that. And, and then God gave those people his law and they became his people, and he became their God. And they were to be a city on a hill, so to speak, to show the world that there's one true God. And if you would uh, repent from false gods and idols and turn to him, that he would bless you and you could have uh, a redeemed life with him. That was what happened. And then all through time, you know, they would follow and serve God as they should, and then they would be bad, and then they would have to repent, and he would have to, you know, chase, chasten them and whatnot. Prophecies, writings, books, it's amazing. Until the prophet Malachi. The, Ma the prophet Malachi prophesied about 300 years after Isaiah and about 400 years before you know, what we would call New Testament times. That period from Malachi to Jesus to New Testament is roughly 400 years. That's the intertestamental period. And, and, and Israel is like, where is God? He's gone silent. There is no prophecy. There's no nothing. From then till then. The interesting thing is that the very last thing that God spoke through the prophets before the New Testament was John the Baptist. And the very first thing to happen after this 400-year intertestamental time was John the Baptist. So he spoke of what was coming next. He was silent until it was the right time and that it came. Let me give you some uh, scriptures from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, this is God. Again, now, you know, give or take 700 years before John the Baptist, prophesying of John the Baptist through Isaiah. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. That's a prophecy of John. Now, there's more, but that's a specific prophecy of the one that was to come. They asked John the Baptist who he is, and he said, I'm one crying out in the desert. Make a pathway for the Lord. He knew who he was. He was prophesied 700 years before his actual time. Then you get to Malachi roughly 300 years later than the Isaiah prophecy, and in chapter 3, he prophesies, behold, this is God speaking through Malachi, behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's prophetic to John the Baptist. And then the very last two verses of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 say, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The final word of the Old Testament, so to speak,
was prophesying John the Baptist. The first sort of word of the New Testament was John the Baptist crying out his message of repentance for the forgiveness of your sins, making the way for those who would repent for the Messiah that was to come. It's cool, isn't it? Because the word that God gave us in the interpretation had everything to do with the message of John the Baptist. So let's go ahead now and let's read that. That's Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 9. The context of this is John the Baptist himself has been imprisoned, and he's, um, he's not understanding what's going on, and he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to try to say, hey, are you actually the one that came? Are you the one that we, was prophesied? Are you the, really the one that we were waiting for? So that's the context of this conversation. Now, Jesus is then speaking about John the Baptist. And he says, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about who it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist, or excuse me, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. That's a really important statement for church on the street. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So I want to read to you what some of the commentary guys say because there's, there's two general interpretations of the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force, and they both agree with what God is trying to do here in this church right now. Okay, so um, one of them says... The sense of this verse may be rendered this way, specifically the kingdom suffers violence, not the whole thing. The kingdom presses ahead relentlessly, and only the relentless press their way into it. Thus again, Christ is magnifying the difficulty of entering the kingdom. So this interpretation says that the kingdom suffers violence, and violent people take it by force, that that only those who are relentless in, in, in the context of what he's doing with us is relentless to what do you believe. Do you believe that it's okay to do what you want because God knows your heart? Or do you say, no, he's calling me to holiness and righteousness and truth? See, he's, this interpretation says that it's only those who are relentless in their passion to hold on to the truth and to gain the truth and not waver from the truth are actually going to find their way into the kingdom. That's the violence that the violent are doing to get into the kingdom. A second one reads like this. But the kingdom had been subject to violence and evil men... We're trying to take it by force. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, forceful men, were resisting the movement introduced by John, Jesus, and the apostles. Those leaders wanted a kingdom, but not the kind Jesus was offering. Does that sound familiar? Right? 
So they were resisting the message and attempting to establish their own rule. But John's message was true, and if the nation would accept it and consequently accept Jesus, John would fulfill the prophecies of Elijah. Only if they accepted the message would John the Baptist be the Elijah who was to come. So, so that interpretation says that, that the, the forcefulness that's trying to take hold of the kingdom are those people with these false teachings, with these wrong ways of believing, and they're forcefully trying to make the kingdom what they want it to be, which is this is the one that really resonated inside of me and why I felt so strongly that it was assigned that day for that message about what do you believe. Because, see, in the Western church, the violence of, hey, man, I just want to tell people what they want to hear. And then they'll come to church, and somehow, you know, we'll get them saved or whatever. But no, that's not the message of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom is repent. You can't be how you are in the world and be in the kingdom. It's a powerful message. It's an um, offensive message. When you tell somebody, listen, you're a dirty, rotten sinner, you know, probably want to use a little nicer words, but the truth is you hate God. No, I love God. No, you don't. You live your life in such a way that denies him, that rebels against him, and demonstrates that you hate him. And unless you repent... You cannot have his kingdom, you cannot have his salvation, and you won't be able to stay with him forever in his heaven. You are damned in your sin unless that you repent. But see, people don't respond too well to the truth. They want a different truth. So people say, well, that's not how I see God. I don't really believe that way. And they end up with a gospel that's no gospel at all, and they end up lost in their sin when they think that they're not. So when he said to us, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent people are taking it by force, that's the interpretation that stirred with me. And now the church is full of these, these doctrines that, that don't agree with the truth, yet we're all happy because it gives us what we want without taking much from us at all. I never understood the part about we played the flute and you didn't dance and, and we sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. You know, there are children in the street. And my sense for that one is... They wanted to play their flute, and Jesus, you dance to my song. Jesus, dance to my song. And Jesus isn't going to dance to their song. That's why they're mad at him. They said, well, you're just a glutton and a drunkard, and you just hang out with sinners. You're not my Messiah, because my Messiah would dance to the tune of my flute. He would mourn when I tell him that I'm singing a mourning song. I think that's what that scripture means. And he's speaking to us. He's like, whose flute are you going to play? Or whose flute are you going to dance to? The flute of somebody who tells you what you want to hear? or the flute of the one who can actually save you. The point, God is giving us a shake, a a gentle slap on the side of the head, a stirring to humble ourselves, to have ears to hear, to heed the message, the preaching, and the teaching that is to come. To not be deceived and to reject the false doctrine that would have us find comfort and satisfaction in falling short of the call of the Great Commission. He's shaking us. He's asking us. He's like, what do you want to do? The key is if, if we are willing to accept the real truth, the scriptures, and decide whose flute that we want to dance to, the flute of the Lord, the flute that, the flute that plays through the scriptures, or the flute that plays through our flesh, and the demon doctrines and the doctrines of men that would give us the kingdom the way we want it but doesn't actually produce life. You see this similar, um, a parallel in Luke chapter 16. It says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him, him being Jesus. 
And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. See, it's the same thing. They heard Jesus and they scoffed at him. Why? Because his gospel didn't agree with their gospel. In this case, there were guys that figured out how to be religious somebodies and it made them rich. And Jesus was like, listen, you can't serve God in wealth. And they're like, eh, you don't know what you're talking about. They scoffed at Jesus because his gospel didn't mean or didn't give them what their gospel was giving them. They ignored his preaching. It's, it's an example of forcing their way. They're forcing their way. And if you can get it, it's like their way. Like, no, no, this is the kingdom. God loves you. Because he loves you, you get to go to heaven. This is the kingdom. You do what you want because in your heart you really love Jesus and he knows it. That's the forcefulness that these guys are trying to say, no, no, money's good and we should have it because we're the religious leaders. And I don't know how they justified themselves, but that's what Jesus said. You justify yourselves. We can't justify ourselves. We're unjust until or unless the very righteousness of Christ himself is imputed to us. And that's how we get justified, not by anything we do. Okay, Acts chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Now, this is Peter speaking, and he's quoting Moses. So Peter says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from your brethren. To him, that prophet, you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. That prophet is Jesus. Jesus is a prophet like Moses in the sense that Moses was a deliverer. God used Moses to deliver Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. God used his son, Jesus, the prophet, to deliver the world out of the bondage of sin and death, right? That prophet that he's speaking to is Jesus. Not only, I should have expounded on this a little bit more. Remember in, um, in the Matthew 11, it says... And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah. Remember, it was prophesied in Malachi. It was prophesied in Isaiah. And then the end of Malachi actually said this prophet would be Elijah. Well, it's not Elijah himself. It's, a, it's the one who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But he said, Jesus said to them, if you will accept it, then he's your Elijah. But they wouldn't accept it. So he wasn't their Elijah. Make sense? Same thing happened to them with regard to Jesus. He said, uh, and it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed. They not only missed their Elijah, they missed their Messiah because he didn't come with the message that they wanted to hear. See, that can be us. We can miss the prophet if we don't heed. Now, next week, God willing, you know, it can change. But next week, the teaching is going to be on what does it mean to be a disciple. And that teaching will be the teaching of the prophet that he's talking about. So when Jesus says, deny yourself, Peter said, unless you heed that prophet, you'll be destroyed. So people that think, oh, I can be a Christian, but I don't have to deny myself. They're not heeding the words of that prophet himself. The words of that prophet start with repent. But the church doesn't want to repent because it likes its stuff, right? I mean, you know, I like the stuff that my flesh likes. It's pleasant but it's evil and it brings death and not life. 
So unless that I heed that prophet and his words, I will be destroyed. So some kind of mental ascension to Jesus and agreeing that he existed doesn't get you to the place of having a relationship with God. You must heed the prophet that was sent. This is sobering. And I think, you know, I'm painting with a broad brush, and it doesn't get to touch everybody. But generally, in the Western church, I think this is a pretty, pretty accurate scripture. Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. And he, Jesus, and he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to, to the tradition of men. He, also, he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And, and we have traditions, right? We, you know, we love our traditions, except if they don't agree with the word of God, then we're the hypocrites that he's talking about here. Okay, a couple of supporting scriptures. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 27. And he was passing, he again is Jesus, was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Can you see this from the scriptures that I've just shared with you? And will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. And he will answer and say to you, I don't know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, you evildoers. You could change those words a little bit today. I came to church every Sunday. I put my money in the basket. I did certain things. And he's going to say, well, okay, but I never knew you because you had a gospel that wasn't the gospel. You, you had a... Um, a prophet that you listened to that wasn't him. And, and he's like, I don't deny that you were there when I was teaching. I don't deny any of the things that you were there at the meal when we had food together. But I never knew you. You never repented. You never trusted in me. Away from me. Go away. And here's all these people. They're going to get to the door of heaven. And they're going to be shocked. Because they gave themselves to something that wasn't true. That word strive, it, the Greek word behind it is agonizomai. It, it's basically the word you get agonized from. So when they're asking Jesus about it, it's just only going to be a few people that get saved. He's like, agonize, strive, take by force your way into the narrow path. You get on that narrow path and you hold fast to it. Otherwise, you'll be one of the many that goes the other way. You're familiar with this. This is Matthew chapter 7, similar thing. Jesus speaking again, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many, <coughs> excuse me, there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. I, I called my friend um, Ed Watts to talk to him about this sermon I don't know how many of you know Ed Watts. He, he's awesome, um, just fantastic guy. And uh, I said, Ed, I just need to share with you what the Lord is doing. And I just need somebody to tell me you're, you're wacky and you need to back off or you're right on. 
or you're okay here, and you know, I mean, I have Pat Thomas to help me with that, but I really felt like Ed Watts was the guy for me to call. So I called Ed, and uh, he talked to me about this, and I said, Ed, here's the way I see that scripture. Jesus is the gate. It's only Jesus, right? You can't get on any way that leads to heaven unless you start with Jesus. And then the way, the process, from now when I got saved, I got on the narrow path, till that day when my salvation is actually consummated, when this life ends and the next one begins, what, what would I call that? I call that disciple. And Jesus defines a disciple. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So for, for our purposes, when you think of the narrow way, think of Jesus as the gate. He's the only way onto the way that leads to life. And he is the way, right? The way is defined the way Jesus defines disciple. Okay, let me just give you some words, for, again, from some of my commentaries that I think do a really good job of describing this. First one. Christ taught that we are not to expect a majority of people to follow him on the road that leads to eternal life with God. Comparatively, few will pass through the gate of godly humility and true repentance, turning from and denying their own way in order to follow Jesus. This means doing all that we can to obey his commands, pursuing his purposes and standards, and pressing on through the difficulties of life with true faith, purity, and love. Another one reads this way, true saving faith, the kind that brings us back into a personal and eternal relationship with God, involves more than simply believing and agreeing in your mind that Christ is the Savior. Just as genuine repentance requires a change of direction and behavior, real faith in God also requires action. A person puts faith into action by breaking away from sin and deciding in his or her heart to live in such a way that his or her character and lifestyle please God. Any other teaching of Christian faith is a misrepresentation of the biblical message about believing in and following Christ. Faith that includes repentance is always a condition for spiritual salvation. And then finally, Christ continually emphasized the difficulty of following him. Salvation is by grace alone, but is not easy. It calls for knowledge of the truth, repentance, Submission to Christ as Lord and willingness to obey his will and his word. Think about this. You're probably familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In chapter 5, seven times Jesus says these words. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have this perception, but I say to you. This is what you've been taught, but I say to you. That's this message. That's the whole thing. Bam! Bam, bam, bam. Jesus says, listen, this is what you've been told, but this is the truth. Over and over again, seven times he says that. We have to ask ourselves, the, the you have heard it said, I think that's the doctrines of man that he's talking about in the scriptures. You've heard it said, right? The Pharisees told you this, the Pharisees told you that. This one told you this, this one told you that. This one said, no, no, it's okay if you do that because God knows your heart. All that junk. That you have heard it said. Jesus says, I say to you, that's the truth. That's the counter. That's the one that you got to listen to. That's the one that you find in the scriptures. Is our Christianity directed by, you have heard it said? Or is our Christianity directed by, I say to you? I think the answer is yes. But we got to get that first one out. We have to check those things that are false, and we have to repent from those things. And God will give us grace if we do. You know, I told you about 
being convicted of um, watching things that were unholy. You know, most people wouldn't say they were bad. They were broadcast TV shows. You know, I'm just watching them one after the next on Netflix. The Lord convinced me, convicted me. There were people having sex with each other. Now, they didn't show the sex, and I would close my eyes. You know, good Christian guy watching bad things. Close my eyes. But it was, took me a year to repent. And I kept pretending like, no, uh-uh, la, 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 I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. It's not really God. It's just something else. Satan doesn't, you know. Until he showed me that thing. It's, I'm not holding you back, Pat. It's your affections that are restraining you. And that rocked me to my core. So I, I cut it out. But it was so hard to make that decision. You have no idea how my life has changed since I made that decision that I am not going to defile myself with things that aren't holy. And, and the, here's the point I'm trying to make is, I, I saw this movie on, um, what's the Christian one we have? Pure Flicks. Not so Pure Flicks, let me just tell you. And it was, it was called Lonesome Dove. And I've remembered it. It's a Western, a cow, oh, here's a cowboy movie I can watch. And I'm just looking for your children. <laughs> the guy's talking to a prostitute in a bar, and he says, listen, just take my money and let's go up and have a poke. I'm like, I'm done with this one. It's like, you know, done. It, and, but I wanted to watch it. And, oh, it's long and it's going to entertain me. And, but it was so easy to say, sorry, I'm done with you. And other, I'm done with you. I mean, I've seen more documentaries on oil tankers and polar bears that I couldn't even count them. <laughs> but here's the point I want to make with you. It was impossible for a year I, I denied God's voice in my ears. I, I, I resisted everything he was, he was telling me, stop it, stop it, stop it, until I didn't. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. For a year, I fought with him, and there was no grace. I didn't repent. The minute I repented, everything that I think I want, and I find out it's easy, it's easy for me to turn it off because I'm humble now before God in this area of my life. And he's given grace. And grace is the answer to everything. So I'm just telling you, as, as we start to confront things, and you have to confront them in your life because I don't know your lives. As you start to confront those things that God says that is not holy, it's not something that I'm going to ordain in your life. And unless you stop it, my grace isn't going to flow in areas of your life unless you confront those things. It's not going to change. But when you do... God is faithful, and then he gives you the grace to actually do it, and it's easy. Okay, that was a sidebar. Okay, so that, here we go, almost done. We have the divine opportunity. We have been given, right, commission. I've been thinking about that so much, commission. If God says, go do this, you have a mission. But if God says what he said, go and preach the gospel to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, and lo, I will be with you always. Guess what it becomes? A commission. Because you're not out there by yourself. You're out there with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You're empowered by grace. The anointing, Larry, teach you about the anointing. The anointing will come and make able all his stuff to get done. So we have a divine opportunity to fulfill our purpose in the Lord, to truly be the body of Jesus, to effect a glorious reward for his suffering. Just think, if we don't go to the nations, you know, I mean, we don't have to leave the United States if he doesn't call us. We could go to our next-door neighbor. We could go to work. Wherever we run into people, then Jesus will have suffered for people that he's commissioned his body to reach, and we just don't go do it, and his suffering is wasted. Or it's not wasted. 
we have the opportunity to properly honor the sacrifice and the suffering that was done for us. Or not. We have the opportunity to do it or we have the opportunity to deny it. That deception, that violent deception, caused those folks to miss their Elijah. It caused those folks to miss their Messiah. It is idolatry, a God and a gospel of their own making. It denies and deceives people from true salvation. It diminishes and destroys the effectiveness of the commission. We need to push the reset button and decide. Will we heed the prophet or will we follow the deceiving doctrines of men and demons? I, I have this conversation so much with people. You have to decide. You've not made a decision. You're trying to have the world and God, and I promise you, you don't have God if you have the world. I promise you. It says that you don't love God if you have any affection for the world. So the, the thing that's hard about Christianity, and it's, it is hard. It's hard because you have to deny yourself. But it's less hard when you make a real decision. When you say, I'm deciding, I'm not watching that stuff anymore. I've made a decision, and then the grace comes. But if you're kind of trying to, oh, but I think I can still, God will be okay with it because he knows my heart. You're going to be in this constant churning turmoil until we make a decision. So what I'm telling you is evaluate. Look at the scriptures. Look at the teaching call me and sit with me. I mean, I would love to talk with anybody who's struggling with this and then make a decision and understand that if you don't decide the way the scriptures teach, then you haven't decided Jesus. Amen? Okay, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and I'm going to read a little bit of scripture that I'm not going to talk anymore, but I forgot to take the offering, so let's do that right now. Sure. Sure. You need the thing. Okay. Slide that little button all the way to the top. Yep. When it's green, you can talk. There you go. Okay. Um, in November, a friend of mine went in for emergency surgery, bowel obstruction. And anytime that surgery happens, creates scar tissues, greater chance of it happening again. Yesterday, she drove herself to the emergency room. Another bowel obstruction. I went and sat with her. I was there until about 2.30 this morning. Just before I left, I held her hand, prayed for her, and I just found out 10 minutes ago that she doesn't have to have surgery again. Come on. Amen. There you go. Church on the street. Good job. Get it out of the house. Okay, Father God, thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for meeting all our needs. Thank you for being faithful to provide exactly the way that you, you said that you would, Father. Thank you, Lord, that if we keep our nose pointed towards your purposes, if we seek your kingdom and your righteousness, then you take responsibility to make sure that everything we need, we have. We don't have to worry, and we don't worry. Somebody asked me the other day, um, how's the church doing financially? I'm like, I have no idea. I don't ask. I don't think about it. I know that if we will seek you, you will provide for us, and that's as deep into the finances as I choose to go. Thank you, Lord, for the offering today. We ask your blessing on it. We ask your multiplying power over it, and we ask the conviction to spend it however it is that you would have it to be spent. We thank you, we praise you, and we pray to you in Jesus' name. Now, Father, I pray over this congregation. I pray, Lord, surrender. I pray death everything that's not 
of you dies. We won't hold on to our own life. We won't continue in any way, shape, or form to be anything but what you tell us we're to be. We will seek after you, after your righteousness, after your likeness, Lord, and we will be a city on a hill. And you will flow through us in ways that even were greater than through King Jesus. I praise you, Lord, for your ability to work within us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. And on behalf of all of us, I say thank you in Jesus' name. Okay, I'm going to read the scripture and then I'm done and Margie will have the ball. This is Ephesians chapter 4. He here is Jesus again. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Thank you and amen.